0: We are now in the second week of our series called The Good Initiative, and uh, we are talking about what it means for us to do the good, to expect the good, and to proclaim the good of God to our family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers, the city of Orlando and the surrounding areas. Let me take a moment, actually, and just welcome those who are online. We're so glad that you guys are with us. We pray for you all the time, and uh, when you are in town, make sure you stop by. Can we welcome them, if you will? That's what I'm talking about. Amen. Amen. So we are talking about what does it look like for us as a church to prepare for the next three to five years? Because God is blessing grace. He's pouring out his blessing on us, and we're seeing lives changed, people transformed, people are getting help and counseling, people are getting healed. Uh, all kinds of wonderful and amazing things are happening when the presence of the Lord is with us. And so what does it look like, our responsibility and all that? Well, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Now, let me tell you a little bit about what the Apostle Paul's doing in these verses. He is actually talking to the Corinthians about another church. This other church, or churches, are found within the Macedonian region. He he just calls them the Macedonian churches. And the Macedonian churches are Thessalonica, the Berean churches, and the churches in Philippi. What you need to know about these churches is that they're under persecution. They're under suffering. And as such, they are having their, uh, fit, their households uh, actually, actually confiscated from them. They are going through all kinds of persecution, and they're not very wealthy. Now, he's talking to Corinth, and Corinth is um, the capital city of the Roman Empire in the region of Achei. It's a port city. It's very wealthy. It's very powerful, and it's very cosmopolitan. This is the New York City of that region, right? And so as a result, he's coming to these guys, and he's saying, hey, listen, I have a challenge for you, and that is I'm taking up a collection. He's asking the church to be generous. I'm taking up a collection to help the Christians that are in Jerusalem that are undergoing a famine, and we want you to help. But surprising to Paul, because he doesn't even ask any of the Macedonian churches, but surprising to Paul The Macedonians say, we want to help our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem too that are going through this terrible famine. And Paul's like, how can you do that? You have nothing. And they're like, we're going to give anyway, and we're going to be extraordinarily generous. He's taking this one church, these churches in Macedonia, and he's saying to the Corinthian church, you who have abundance, learn from their lessons. And he's doing that same thing for all the churches that would exist throughout history ever since. And so that's what we're going to look at today. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, talking about the Macedonian church says this. And now, brothers and sisters in Corinth, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. The great grace that he's given them is not their giving capacity. It's not their generosity. Their great gift that they have is knowing how to navigate the culture in which they're in while keeping Jesus first above everything else. And the beautiful thing about that is not only do the the Macedonian churches keep Jesus first and foremost in their life, but in the middle of persecution, they have listened to Jesus's teaching about how we live in a world that doesn't love us well. So let's jump out of our text for a moment, take a look at what Jesus actually taught about this, and we'll see what we can learn for ourselves. Jesus picks up this conversation in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, and he says this, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. All right, let's start right here. First phrase that he uses here, he says, but to you who are listening. Jesus doesn't presuppose that everybody that's listening to him is actually listening. He uses phrases all the time. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. And the idea behind it is sometimes when you're communicating to someone else, when you're communicating to someone else, people have stuff going on in their own heads. They're thinking about things, interpreting things the way they want to. But he's like, listen, I need you to tune in right now. I need you to listen because what I'm about to say to you is really important. When he uses these phrases, he's like, pay attention, all right? He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So the first challenge he says is, I want you to be a loving church. And in the early church, in the first three centuries of the church, Christianity was outlawed. It lived as a, uh, if you will, an underground faith within the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire knew they existed, and they often came down on them very harshly. But because these Christians loved so well, over the 300 years, the first 300 years of the church, the Roman Christians, churches within the Roman Empire, actually transformed the entire culture in such a way that the Roman emperor in about 386 AD became a follower of Jesus and declared Christianity the national religion of of the Roman empire. That's how far they moved. How were they able and willing to be able to make cultural changes in their world? Well, this is exactly how. They were actually more loving. And they didn't just say, Jesus didn't say, love your family. He didn't just say, love your friends, love the people that you love. But he's like, actually, love is so large that it actually encompasses your enemies. He says, I want you to love your enemies and I want you to do good to those who actually hate you. I mentioned this about eight or nine weeks ago and I don't know where it happened, but I think I've I've narrowed it down. I think it happened when somewhere back in the 1980s, there were church leaders and politicians that got together and created a unified kind of thing. It was called the moral majority. It was a big deal. But ultimately, what happened was the church and, and, and politics, because we don't talk about politics here, but the church and politics got together. This was a major flaw in the strategy of the church, okay? Because when you take church and you put it in politics, it very rarely elevates politics. When you take the church and you put it in politics, it always demotes the church. Watch this. To you who are listening, I want you to love. And so somewhere along the way, when that happened, Christians began seeing the way that we transform the world is through public policies and things like that. Well, that's never been in the 2,000 years of history how Christians have ever changed any culture that they've been a part of. The way that they changed their culture was they embodied the principles of Jesus and transformed hearts and lives, right? So watch this, super important. So some of you, consequently today, you look at the word love and you think it's a soft skill. You look at it and you go, this is just kind of, that's weakness. So when someone hits you, you hit them back twice as hard. No, 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 no. That's the Godfather. That was the movie, The Godfather, right? Al Pacino, when they hit you, you hit them twice as hard, right? That's how it works, right? So so that's what it was. That's not Christianity. When you're hit, he says, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies and then do good to people who hate you, right? And so he gives us this principle. Actually, this right here takes way more strength than just responding. When someone comes at you fiercely and they're yelling at you and screaming at you, it's very, very easy to just let what's on the inside just spill out on the outside. When I was young, when I was a kid, I got into all kinds of fights because I was just an angry child, right? And uh, grew up in a very abusive with a very violent father, right? But my father would always tell me, did you get into a fight? Because he, you know, hear from the teachers, Mike was fighting again. And he would be like, did you win the fight? And I was like, yes, sir. And he goes, good, because if you come home and you lost the fight, I'm gonna beat you again, all right? I learned from a very, very young childhood that the way that you protect yourself is you be forceful with those around you, until I met Jesus. And I learned that I don't actually have the power to be forceful in that way. All I can do is create more drama, more anger, more hatred. But When I came across Jesus, he's like, I have all the power in the world, and I've demonstrated it through love that this Jesus was on a cross one day and he was hanging there being brutalized by us. Being, they, were, they were throwing, uh, hurling uh, um, accusations against him and insults against him. And here is God in the flesh. He doesn't come and destroy. He actually surrenders his life and dies because in the dying for us, it opens up eternal life to us. It was his way of loving us well. That has always been the Christian thing to do to lay your life down for someone else always been the Christian thing to do. From the very beginning with Jesus, love your enemies. This does not take weakness. This is strength. When someone's screaming at you to hold back and not scream back at them, it takes discipline, it takes strength, and it takes courage. We need to change that in the psyche of the church today. You don't hit someone back when they hit you. That's politics, and how's that working? Are we together? We're not. The way Jesus said you're gonna win the hearts and the lives of people is you're gonna paint the more beautiful story of my father and me. So I was at Starbucks, um, as I often am, and uh, I was sitting there and I was listening to this guy. He was about 30 years old. He was talking to 20-somethings. And uh, and he was like, so I I try not to listen to people's conversations around me. I really don't do that. I actually totally try to listen to people's conversations around me. So if you're listening near me, I'm just gonna know. Sometimes I'm not even present with the person I'm talking to. I'm like, you know, (laughs) ADHD. I don't know what, but uh, but so all 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 of that to say, I'm sitting there, and especially when someone says Jesus or church, I tune in, right? And this guy was like, Jesus is such a such, and you know, he's talking about how Jesus is you know bad, and, and how you shouldn't follow Jesus, how the church is messed up, and I was listening to him. I was quietly listening. To him. I was patient, you know, and I was just listening. I was listening, and listening. And I was like, "That's well, that was a really good point about the church. And I thought, that's a good point about the church. Like, there's some really good points you're making right now. And the 20-somethings are eating it up, right? This guy's like a sage, right? And he's just like, because he's 30, you know, he's figured it all out. And he's just sitting there. He's talking, he's talking. And they're like, oh, that's so right, that's so right. And I'm like, yeah, there's some, that's right too. I, I, yeah, I agree with that. That's fair. That's a, that's a decent criticism. But he's, as he's talking about Jesus, he starts talking about the nature of Jesus and who he is and how he was immoral and how he did this and how he did that. And I was listening to it, and I'm 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 thinking to myself at the end of his conversation, um, if I was one of the 20-somethings, and even me, I'm like, man, I don't like Jesus or the church anymore either. I mean, the way that you paint that picture is compellingly terrible. Yeah, and if I'm one of those 20-somethings, and I've never had anybody tell me about Jesus, the real Jesus, I'm gonna look at this deformed Jesus that he said uh, is is the Jesus of the Bible. I'm gonna look at that, and I'm gonna go, yeah, that's terrible. I don't want anything to do with that. And I wondered... Where did he get his ideas from? Then maybe he got his ideas from the internet. Who knows? Or maybe he came across a deformed Christian who taught him, because they embodied the wrong thing, what it was like to be a follower of Jesus. And when he saw the Christian and all their deformity, he said, well, if Christians are like this, maybe their Jesus is like this too. I think the church has always been a place where we've won the culture and won the lives of our family, friends, and neighbors by embodying the principles of who Jesus was truly was. Because for me, what I think our job is right now, our job is to paint the more beautiful story. Because the Jesus that I know, the Jesus that I know is offering everyone in the room, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're online, not believing anything I'm talking about, he's still offering you life, salvation, and hope. And all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is say, I'll trust him with my life. And the beautiful thing about that is he's just saying, anybody and everybody, whoever wants it, just come, come, come. Come to me all who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The Jesus that I've met, he heals, he restores, he transforms, he informs, he helps, he leads, he guides, he strengthens, he comforts. All of these things are the Jesus of the scriptures. But for some reason, the world around us doesn't see the Jesus of the scriptures. Because maybe one of the things that Jesus taught we've lost, and that is that we are to embody the truth of the gospel and not just know facts about God. Maybe the guy in the coffee shop's not off because that's all he's ever seen. Maybe somebody needs to sit down with a 30-year-old and say, let me tell you about who Jesus really is. Jesus says in Luke 6.35, love your enemies and do good to them, he says, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. That's very interesting. Then your reward will be great, and you will, demonst- you will be children of the Most High. He means demonstrate that you're children of the Most High. Because he, God, is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. All right, let's start right here. But love your enemies and do good to them. We, we just heard that. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back, right? So if you've got that, you know, guy at the fence on the other side of your property and you guys have been yelling at each other for years, you're like, I don't like you, I don't like you. You don't cut your grass right. You don't do this, you don't. And then he comes over and you see his yards, you know, his yard's out of control and he doesn't have a lawnmower. Give him your lawnmower. Like say, hey, I will, I will send my yard guy over there or I will, I'll, here's my lawnmower. It doesn't, this, by the way, this doesn't mean you can't get it back doesn't mean lend to him your lawnmower and you're like, dang, I can't ever ask for it back again. That's not what he means. He means lend to them. Watch, this is so cool. Watch this. And this is gonna free some of you in the room, all right? And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. What, What does that mean? Do good to them without expecting them to turn around and go, oh, well, thank you so very much. See, See, this stops a lot of us from doing good to other people because we have a transactional mind. I'm gonna do for you... And then you do for me. It's called a quid pro quo, but it's not kindness. Kindness is doing what what Jesus is talking about here, which is give without expecting anything back. But if you give something, your lawnmower, whatever, you can ask for your lawnmower back. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you do something kind for somebody, don't expect for them to turn back around and thank you. Expect for them to be the person that they were before. But notice this: your reward is not them changing in that moment. Your reward is going to be great. It's going to be it's going to be God Himself. God will reward you for that. He'll strengthen your heart. He'll strengthen your mind. Your reward will be great and you will demonstrate that you are children of the God. Demonstrate to who? To this guy, your enemy. You'll demonstrate who you're really supposed to be because you'll embody the truth. Well, look at this. Because he, God is kind to the ungrateful. Look at it up there. Because he is, God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. If God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, we should be kind to the ungrateful and wicked. We don't need to see them as separate and just a bunch of people that are disgusting and filthy. We need to look at those who are sinful and wicked and say, these are potential future people who can follow Christ if we embody the truth and we show Jesus to them. But again, for some reason in the church, because I think it slipped in through politics, which is the kingdom of man and the kingdom of the world, which the Bible says is run by the devil, and the kingdom of God, which is the church, they're two separate things right? And when you combine those things like that, you eventually destroy the church, which is why the influence of the church in America has declined over the last 30 years significantly. You know why? Because we're a pundit just like anybody else. We're a subcategory of people that are a voting block. That's not who we're supposed to be. We're a countercultural movement designed to sacrifice our lives for the sake of the world. That's who we are. That's who we're supposed to be. So let's put some handles to love for a second. Because love, what does that mean? Well, one of the greatest theologians in all of Christian history was Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas defined love this way up on the screen. He said, love is the choice to will the good of the other. Love is the choice to will the good of the other. So Pastor Mike, what does that mean? First of all, this will free you too. It's a choice, not a feeling The reason why some of you have not been able to love other people in your life is because you've never been able to generate or fake or muster up the feelings of love for them. That's not what love is. Love is not the feeling at all in the Bible. There are three different types of Bible love. One is called eros, one is called philio, and the other is gape. Here, this is philio love that he's describing, brotherly love. This is why Philadelphia, philo, that's the prefix for Philadelphia, is the word love. It's the Greek word for love. And it's the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, right? Love is the choice. It's a choice you make with your mind, not with your heart, right? And so because we're called to love our enemies, he says, I want you to make the choice to love your enemies. And how do I do that? I do it by willing the good of the other. I expect good for them. So you know what's really hard to do? It's really, really hard to hate someone that you're praying for and asking God to bless. So we pray for our enemies and we say, God bless them. And if your enemy is the great politician that you don't like, then pray for that person. Don't just disregard them and murder, them with your, murder their reputations. That's not what we do. That's not what we do as Christians, right? So he's like, I want you to love. The reason why it's freeing is because if you feel like you have to muster up the feelings in order to love someone, so everyone has a weird uncle, right? Okay? Like everyone has someone in their family that you're just like, I just can't get behind him. Like I just, I I wanna stay away from him, keep my eye on him all the time. Like I just, he's a little sus, right? And you're just like, I don't know. I'm just not sure about him, okay? And so uh, you like sus. I could hear it come back all throughout. You're like, sus, that's hilarious. Okay, so, so he's just a little strange, right? And you feel like you have to like muster up the feelings for him. You don't. All that you're required to do is to say, I'm gonna will the good for this person. I'm gonna do my best for them. I'm gonna believe the best about them. And the beautiful thing about that is that it actually comes back to us. Verse 38, Jesus again, and this is a verse that's often used to describe generosity or money. It has money implications, but it's really not about generosity in money sense. It's about, gener- it's about generosity in the sense of generous spirit towards other people. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 38, give and it will be given to you Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured out into your lap. For the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. What does this mean? Well, you know what I'm going to do? He's saying, give, and it will be given to you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you mercy when you need mercy. I'm going to give you grace when you need grace. I'm going to give you forgiveness when you need forgiveness. And by the way, the way in which I do that will come back to me. So you're like, well, that just sounds like karma, you know, do good to others, good things. No, no, why? Because we've already learned that we should not expect because we're not gonna t- deal with people like, uh, like um, transactionally. What we're gonna deal with people like is we're gonna love them really well and we're gonna give, not expecting something back, but look what it says, give and it will be given to you. So if I am constantly giving forgiveness to people, when I need forgiveness, you know what people are gonna do? They're gonna give it to me, that's right. When I'm giving grace to people, you know, uh, undeserved favor for their life. You know what? You know what? You know what uh, they're going to do for me? They're going to give me grace, right? And it's going to be a good measure, not a little bit, like a bunch. A measure here in this case, the whole, this whole thing centers on this phrase, a good measure. A good measure, so they would measure differently. Like, you know, like think of them as buckets. If your bucket is really big for forgiveness, you'll receive lots of forgiveness. If your bucket's really small, you're going to receive very small forgiveness. I know people who walk around their whole life and their whole thing is basically like, you know, You get what you deserve and you deserve what you get. You earn what you get, period. Well, when you fall on your face with that philosophy, you know what people are gonna say? You got what you deserve. Why? Because it comes back to you. How you treat other people, how you measure other people's lives, look at what it says. The measure that you use, how big you see positively, positive positive, beautiful things in other people, the bigger that, that you use that, it will be measured to you, Jesus said. So the way that we influence lives is that we bring kindness and love, which is, willing the good for the other person into that person's life. You don't need to feel it all the time. Feelings will always, almost always, always pull you off track. If you have to manufacture feelings to do something good for your spouse, that's a problem. Do good for your spouse because it's the right thing to do. Do good for your spouse because it comes back to you. Do good for your spouse because you love them, and love is willing the good of the other, right? It's what we do. It's what, it's what it's, it, it, it frees us, it helps us but it does have a financial aspect to it. And I want to talk to you about it because um, generosity includes everything in your life. But but can I just say this? Um, As somebody who has to talk about money once in a while, I mean, it's been like six years since I have uh, talked about money the way that we're doing it right now. But let me just, let me say this. When I talk about it, like you get weird. Can I just like, people that are very, very normal get all freaked out and suspicious and weird. Like, where's, you know, what about this? You know, like you've never asked it any other time, except for when somebody challenged you. And here's, here's why, here's why. Because if you look at any other area of your life, it totally makes sense. But when it comes to money, we just have problems with it. We can't, we can't make the jump. Here, like this. For example, if I say, you know what, if I'm, if I honor God with my marriage and I don't cheat on my wife and I'm faithful to her and I'm kind to her and I will the good for her, you know what happens? She loves me really well back. And our marriage goes well. If I don't do those things and I go off and I'm you know, I mean, with somebody else, that's gonna bring drama and terrible things. Does that make sense, yes or no? So as I invest in my marriage, good things happen, yes? All right, so as you are generous towards other people with your affection, when you are affectionate towards them, they're generally affectionate towards you, yes or no? Yes, all right. When you are faithful with, when I'm faithful with the church, the church goes well, yes or no? Yes, yes. When I am faithful with our staff and try to treat them well, things go well with them, yes or no? When you are faithful with your money, things go better, right? Yes. So what does faithful look like? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Here's Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 and 25. The measure that you use for yourself will be measured back to you, all right? Verse 24 says this, one person gives freely yet gains more and another withholds unduly but comes to poverty a generous person will prosper, but whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. This is the same principle that's that, that is put in place. I want you to look at it. So this is the beginning of a new verse. This is 24 and this is 25, right? Okay, they're just on the same page here, right? So now look at this. This is what's called in, um, in interpret- biblical interpretation, these are parallelisms, okay? Parallelisms, okay? Synonymous parallelisms. So this is going to say the same thing as this, just in a different way just so that you get to see it from all the different angles, right? The camera's just switching around. One person gives, yet freely gains. So because these are parallels, these are, this is so important for your interpretation of the Bible. Remember this for the rest of your life. It'll help you not be frustrated with God, all right? And I'll tell you why in just a second. These are truisms, not promises. We cool? Truisms, not promises. For example, in Proverbs, the Bible says that when you raise a child in the way that they should go, when they are old, they will not depart from it. And mom after mom after mom through history has grabbed that and said, that's a promise from the Lord. The promise is I've known really godly parents that have poured Jesus into their kids over and over and over again. And those kids have turned into hellions. Is God, is God not faithful? Because if it's a promise, God's not being honest. No, it's a truism. You know what happens? Most of the time when you pour Jesus into your kids and you love them really well and you honor the path that God has chosen for them and you just pour your life into them, you sacrifice, most of the time they're gonna grow up and go, I love Jesus because Jesus has been the source of everything good in my life. That's true, generally speaking. Same thing true with these, right? Because look, one person gives freely and gains even more, right? But we know sometimes people give freely and they don't gain anymore because it's a truism, not a promise, Look at this one. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. Most of the time when you withhold unduly without, without cause, you will come to poverty. But we also know greedy people that remain rich because it's a truism, not a promise. But this is mostly true for most of us in the room. So look at what it says. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Do you know why when I'm faithful with the church, God honors the church? Because it's the same way when I'm faithful with my personal money, that God honors our personal finances. Same thing's true for you, by the way. And here's how it is. Here's how it, here's how it works. For Kelly and I, we have always given way more than a tithe. We give like, and I only say that not to brag, but I always say that because I believe leadership leads from the front, not from the back. So we're never going to ask you to do something that we're not personally doing as a family. We're all in, okay? And so we give more than that. And then throughout the year, we look for opportunities within the church to give anonymously, just like some of you do. I know people in our church that do the same thing. I have checks all the time from some family to another family. They're like, boom, we just wanted to bless you with this. Who's it from? Can't tell you. Because that's not the goal, right? It's just, but here's what I do know. Every single time the Lord has said, I want you to do this with your money. Every single time, Kelly and I have done it. If God said, hey, I want you to take all the stuff that's in your bank account right now. And I want you to write a check for this. We would do it tomorrow. Do you know why? Everything is the Lord's. We don't. We don't manage 10%. That's not, I mean, the 10% of the Bible says that's God's. But the 90%, by the way, is also God's. And whatever he tells you to do with it, if you're faithful with it, you'll be found faithful. And when you're found faithful, God blesses you more. It's as simple and as basic as I can get that. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed themselves. And I want God on the side of our personal finances. I I don't want to withhold anything from him. I want to give him everything, every area of our life, including our finances. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, again, listen to what it says. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. This is the real poor churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Let me give you the formula for the way that you and I tend to think about generosity. Here's what we think about. Here's our formula. Abundance plus opportunity equals generosity. This is the way we think about it. Where do I have that's not actually, you know, above my bills? What can I then give to a worthy opportunity? And that will lead to my generosity. That's how we think about these things. We always think in terms of manageable gifts. But that's not what the Macedonian church did. Look at their formula. Here it is. It comes right out of the text. Overflowing joy plus extreme poverty equals rich generosity. This is a great example of the woman who gave her last mite. And when Jesus is looking at the disciples, because they used to come up front and give their offerings, right? Because they had coins, you could tell who gave lots because the big coins would rattle around in the copper pot. This one lady comes up one day, she drops this one little coin, and people are like, that's sweet. Jesus goes, that's not sweet. That's everything. She gave her last little bit. She's given more than all of these other people. Why? Because we always give out of overflowing or a, we always give out of abundance. These guys had overflowing joy with extreme poverty and that led to rich generosity. Why? Cuz their faith was in the Lord, not in their stuff. They believed that God could multiply what they have to accomplish his purposes. And Paul didn't even look for them to he didn't even ask them. He's like those guys. Bless their hearts. They're not, they're not they're not doing well. They're not doing okay. Verse 4. In fact, it says uh, Actually, let me, let me, 2 Corinthians 8:3 says this. For I testify that those guys, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Watch this.
1: John and I have been married for four years. We were set up by a group of friends who passed my number along to him. Little did I know that he didn't live in Florida, that he actually lived in India. So we just started chatting, didn't think it was gonna go anywhere, just become friends, but here we are. I am Rachel J. Subakthen, and this is my husband, John. I am the Grace Kids director at Grace for almost 12 years. In Grace Kids, we like to have a fun and engaging environment, but most importantly, learning the gospel on their level. The volunteers say that they really get to build relationships with the kids and get to know them, and they really are like leaders in their lives that are helping them to know Jesus.
2: Lately, we've had a lot of new families come to Grace. After the service, you know, it just feels like home to me. It's India. You know, a lot of people all over, you know, noisy and chaotic. Um, and it's home to be here.
1: Grace for us is really family. Um, both of us don't have family here in Orlando. Uh, my family lives in Atlanta, and John's family lives in India, and we celebrate like milestones together, birthdays, anniversaries, holidays. Um, and this is really these are our people. When we first heard about the Good Initiative, we had just found out that our lease was being terminated by our landlord, that he was going to renew our lease, that we would have to buy a house, and we had one month to do it. We just found out that, like, the best option for us to grow our family is adoption, and that we, because of our age, we need to do two adoptions at one time. So that was like, double the expense. And then to hear about the good initiative and um, being more generous, uh, it was kind of like, oh, this is not the year that I wanted to hear about being more generous. But for us, I kind of feel like it's the perfect timing because I, like a big common theme for us has been trusting God and just knowing that He is good and that good is ahead no matter what. John is really good at trusting God and reminding me to trust God. I, on the other hand, always try to plan and think that I'm in control and I have to do everything or I have to get a second job or I have to do this, do that. And John is always like, this isn't ours. You just trust God and follow Him.
2: I think it comes from looking at my parents' life in India um, you know, my, my, dad and mom are pastors in, um, South India and it's, you know, we never had much, but we've always had enough and I've learned that, you know, for us to be healthy, um, spiritually t- trusting God, uh, is really, really significant. And I think that's what we are called to do. Um, and I think, you know, we have to try our best, try our best. Um, to keep trusting God, we talk about it all the time at our house. That you know, nothing belongs to us. You know, if, whether it's a salary, a family. You know, I know, I don't belong to myself. You know, uh, I'm from God, and you know, I'm His. You are His. Um, so we are definitely excited uh, for the good initiative, and um, you know what's what it's going to bring to Grace.
1: We've both talked about that we want to take some time, and we want to go through the Good Initiative devotional together and just talk about, like, what is God calling us
0: to? What is the next step? I don't think there's two more uh, deserving people who will be parents down the road. I know that you will cry every day and love them and love these children. And I'm so excited. John, you're going to be an amazing father. We're so excited to be here for you guys.
1: We really care about the church. We believe it's a good investment. We see life change happen at Grace almost on a daily basis. You know, as a staff member, I hear stories every day of people's lives being changed. Uh, I get to see some of the benevolent side of people that have been directly impacted by the generosity of grace um i see what investing in grace does in the life of our kids and so i want to be a part of something that's so big that god had to have done it and that's kind of what i feel like with this 30 million dollars you know that he's going to use this uh, and do something so big that none of us even imagined uh and not it'll impact grace and it'll impact our people but you know it's going to impact central florida and so when we think about grace and our time and our resources, uh, we're, we're all in. And so it, this is something worth giving our lives for.
0: I'm so excited about it. I'm so excited about what we're going to have the opportunity to do. Let me, let me show you 2 Corinthians 8.3 again. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So here's what I'm challenging you with. I want you to think about this concretely because, you know, money doesn't really mean anything unless there's context to it, right? So so, um, our family has done something for a long time. We did what's reasonable, right? We go, all right, what are we able to do, all right? And so we looked at that. We did the cost-benefit analysis. We said, all right, we're we're not gonna do this. We're not gonna do that. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna prioritize this. So we set it out. We did it. We took a step. We said, all right, here's where we are. And then we did what this is right here. We did what we were able and then even beyond their ability. And so, so what, what we want you to do in terms of 100% engagement is we want you to have faith and trust. Just like as you trust God with your marriage, it gets better. Trust God with your finances, it gets better as well. Watch this, watch this. When you take a step and you say, God, this is what I'm able to do. And then you take one more, not 10 more, not 20 more, not five more, one more, and you go, God, if you don't show up, this isn't gonna happen that's faith. Because you're saying, I I can't manipulate this. I can't manage this myself. Take that one step beyond what you feel like is normal and manageable and trust him with your life. Trust him with your stuff. Because I promise, once you get stuff right in your life, everything else works. (laughs) Everything else works. Once you get your finances, your generosity, those resources, that stuff begins to click for you. Matthew 6.21 says it like this. This is the reason why it's hard for us. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you know how you can know what your treasure is? What is the thing you think about most of the time? What's what occupies your attention most of the time? That's your treasure. And where are your fear points? That's also where your treasure is. You're afraid of losing something and not having something, not getting something. And here's how Paul kind of ends this whole thing. It says this, in 2 Corinthians 8, 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. So these poor people, he's talking to the rich Corinthians. He's like, they actually came to us. We didn't come to them. They said, we really want to participate in helping relieve the suffering of the people in Jerusalem. And verse 5, and they exceeded our expectations. In other words, they thought, here's what's reasonable for poor poor people to give, and they gave way beyond that. They exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves. Here's why they did that. First to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. All right, so exceeded expectations. Guys, I, I want to do what God promises, and that is this. I want to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. $30 million is the number, but that $30 million is spent. I mean, it's a a building for Oviedo. There's a $3 million renovation to make the counseling center, what it's going to be over here next door. We just have spent, and and then it's the annual budget for two years. All of the annual budget, operating expenses, that kind of stuff, right? All of that, but I don't want to hit $30 million. I want to blow through that number. I don't see any reason why we can't. If everyone's engaged, if we're all trusting God for this, they exceeded expectations, we can exceed expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord. That's how they did it. I want you just to spend some time with the Lord and sit down with him and go, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to participate? Don't preclude it. Don't control it. Don't manipulate it. Just say, Lord, what do you want from me? And then hear that from him and then act. Look at this. They gave themselves to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What he meant was church leadership. I know that this is a pain point for some of you. And I've said this before, but because we have so many more new people, I need you to hear this again. It's a challenge to you if you're new to grace. I know some of you came because your former church did some really dumb things. Whether it was some board in the church that did something foolish that led the church in a bad direction, whether it was the pastor who sinned and fell down and fell short, you're upset and you're frustrated by that. And I 100% think it's valid. Because I know what you did. I know that you gave personally at a sacrificial way. I know that you were there and you were serving. I know that you invited friends and neighbors. And then when those friends and neighbors came and he did something stupid and everything fell apart, you were embarrassed. You put your reputation on the line and said, hey, come to Grace Church with me. And the guy does something stupid? No, man, I totally get why you're frustrated and angry about it. I totally get it. It's reasonable. But with that said, I want you, look up here. I want you to get over it. Listen, listen by getting help. We have counselors here who are willing to talk to you about that. We have pastors who are here who are willing to talk to you about it. We have lay people here who are willing to talk to you about that kind of stuff because the church is the family and the home of Christians. Like water is to a fish, so is the church to Christians. And so your heart separated from it will always diminish your experience with God, always. And here's the second thing, and this is the bigger challenge to you. If you're coming to grace from another church, Here's what I want you to, I wanna challenge you with this. And that is this. Don't bring your baggage from your old church to grace. Don't bring the baggage from your old church to grace. We're not them. We're not. We're not perfect, but we're not them. So grace has been healthy for 20 years and God has blessed for 20 years and he's been faithful for 20 years. And we've had unity for 20 years. His spirit has been poured out on us. That's who we are. So don't bring this stuff from the past. Bring your heart, bring your life, get healed. This is a place for healing. And let's move on together on mission because it's not about us. It's about the city of Orlando and the surrounding suburbs, the 2 million people that are around us that need Jesus, need the gospel, and we have to embody that or the world will fall apart. It's game time. It's important. So to that end, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Next week, we have, uh, next week, 6 p.m. at the building next door, we're having an outdoor concert. It's gonna be awesome. The last time we did it, the neighborhood went crazy. And uh, it's gonna be awesome, all right? So we're gonna do an outdoor concert over here, all right? And it's gonna be our advanced commitment night. What What do we mean by that? Some of you we've been talking about, and you went through some of the early groups that we went through together. Maybe you're ready at this point to say, I'm gonna go first. You know what your friends need more than anything? Because you'll hear this. People will go, I don't know about this, man. I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm I just, I'm a little freaked out by it. You know what they need from you? They need you to be confident. Because when they see someone go first, who is faithful, it empowers faithfulness. Faithfulness produces faithfulness. So I want to encourage you, be there next week, whether you're ready to give or not, be there next week. Let's worship, let's celebrate, and let's praise God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we just come before you right now, with gratitude for all that you have been for grace over these years. Because of the faithfulness of people who came before, we are where we are today. And because of the faithfulness of people today, we'll see people's lives transformed, their marriages healed. We'll see their souls saved. There'll be people sitting in these pews, God, in two years from now that are friends of ours that did not walk with Jesus before. And now they do because we presented a more beautiful story to them than the one that they're living. Father, you are the greatest story, the most beautiful thing that we can invest in. Thank you for our life. Thank you for what you've created here at Grace. We wanna honor you with it and steward it as best as we can. And God, we pray that you pour out your spirit on this church. It's in your name we pray, Amen. amen.